So uh, last week we sort of left off talking more about David. We talked about David and Jonathan. We talked about their relationship. We talked about the fact that um, these guys have a real friendship. They show us a model of what friendship is. And then I kind of thought, well, let's move on to the next book. But I really think before we wrap up First and Second Samuel, we've got to talk about David and his specifically his sin with Bathsheba, the consequences of that. Because here's what happens. And this is, I, this is not an exaggeration. Everything that happens in First and Second Kings uh, and all the way, you could, you could almost say the reverberations of what happened between David and Bathsheba resonate throughout the rest of Old Testament history. Uh, because what happens after, just giving you a spoiler alert, what happens after David sleeps with Bathsheba? There are consequences, relational consequences. Uh, the, the sword never leaves David's house. His sons turn on each other. Uh, there's strife in the family. Um, and Bathsheba, she's right in the middle of it. She's part of it. Um, and inevitably, Israel ends up splitting and having civil war because going back really to the events that take place here. So this deserves our attention. I don't think it would be fair for us to go on to First and Second Kings and just pretend like Second Samuel five to ten doesn't happen. So, so let's talk a little bit about about what happens. God made His covenant with David. That was the last thing we left off on. We talked about the covenant God makes with David. We talked about the fact that Jesus ends up being the fulfillment of the covenant that He makes with David. But then in chapter eleven, Second Samuel eleven. It's a devastating, uh, devastating passage. It is a devastating reminder that men, that the best of men are men at best, right? That's the saying. And David may be the best of men, but he's a man at best. And he has an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. He's in a, a position of authority. He's in a position where he can have whatever he wants. And so he, um, one of the things that happens with Bathsheba, sometimes she gets presented as this temptress, you know, uh, where, oh, she's standing on the roof of her house or something. How many of you, how many of you believe that Bathsheba's on the roof of her house when she's bathing? I, I, I put it in such a way that I sound like I'm tricking you. It's because I am. She's not on the roof of her house. Who's on the roof of their house, though? David is on the roof of his house. Bathsheba, no roof. Um, the, way that they, the way that they did this in the, back in the day was they didn't have indoor plumbing. I don't know if you knew that about the ancient people. <laughs> They don't have indoor plumbing. Everybody's bathing outdoors in their backyard. Usually it's an enclosed space. But of course, the king's got a little bit of an advantage if he feels like being a peeping Tom because he's got an elevated roof. He can be up high. He can look down on the subjects. And sure enough, he sees this woman who is bathing in her backyard. Um, this is a woman who's in no position to say no to the king of the land, especially with her husband gone. And so one of the things I just think we ought to dispense with is this idea of Bathsheba being some sort of temptress for David. She comes, she's beckoned to by the king. Um, this is David's sin, which is what I'm trying to say. This is David's sin. Um, David owns this. David is the initiator. David takes, does everything here. Um, now, if there is some element of Bathsheba being a temptress toward David, we don't see it in the text. We read it in. I think we read it in because we like David. I think we like David, we sympathize with David, we really want to see the humanity in all of this, and yet sometimes, sometimes people just do bad things. And that's certainly what happens here. 
He sleeps with Bathsheba. She's found to be pregnant. There is a desire to cover up the pregnancy and cover up certainly the fact that David had something to do with it. So Uriah is called back. This doesn't work. The plan of covering up the pregnancy doesn't work. She is going to be pregnant when her husband returns. And so the decision is made to kill Uriah in battle. David takes Bathsheba as his wife. When we get... To chapter 12, Nathan confronts David and he says that word to him. If you remember those famous words where he says to him, you are the man. You are the man who stole the the sheep from someone who only had one, even though you had a whole flock. You had more than you needed. You had plenty and yet you took from this other man who only had one. And, And he says, you're guilty. And so one of the things that I want you to notice is the repentance of David David responds to what he hears from David, and he does not offer excuses. He does not come to, uh, to Nathan and say, you know, Nathan, I don't think you understand this, but being the king of Israel is very stressful. I don't think you understand what it's like actually being a ruler over a kingdom as finicky as this. You don't know what it's like to have warfare on every side, the sort of stress that I live with. You know, you can just imagine all sorts of stuff that David could say, and maybe in his head he was saying it while he did it. And yet at the moment, what happens? He simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. He knows that ultimately, yes, it's a sin against Bathsheba. He knows it's a sin against Uriah. He knows that, it, that all this other stuff. But ultimately, he says, this is a sin against the Lord. Nathan promises, though, that God has put his sin away. That was our, that was our uh, um, passage for our assurance this, after, this morning. Um, that God has put away your sin, you shall not die. Even in this moment, there's this foreshadowing of this redeemer who's going to put away the sin of his people. Really remarkable how he puts that because you think to yourself, but how? How does he put it away? How does God just not make David face the consequences of this sin? How is it that he still, that he's able to have peace with God after what he just did? Um, And actually, I just misspoke. I made it sound like he doesn't have consequences for his sin. That's not true at all, is it? Because what happens is the child of their union dies in spite of David's pleading, in spite of David's fasting and praying and the sackcloth and the dust on his head. He does everything that he can. He begs God to spare this child. And yet the consequences of his sin are very real. So David may be favored. Um. But even God's anointed has to face the call to holiness. Even David is called to be a holy man. Um, This fall in chapter 11 is never really recovered from. If you look, the rest of 2 Samuel is sort of like a Shakespearean morality play. Now, actually, Shakespeare is, well, I don't know, whatever a good term for Old Testament, really. Shakespeare is really echoing Old Testament relationships in his writings because... If this is Shakespearean, then whatever Shakespeare is, whatever uh, adjective you want to apply to bi- being biblical. But, but uh, that's what happens here. We have these Shakespearean proportions, this morality play that plays itself out over generations upon generations upon generations as the children of this union are at each other's throats. So family trouble and sorrows dog him for the rest of his life. You have family woes. You have Absalom's attempted rebellion. Um, All of these things don't leave the family. And in fact, um, as we're going into the next book, which we're going to get to in just a moment, we're going to leave 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel. Just a few few, uh, things I want to point out. One is this. The primary message of of 1 and 2 Samuel is 
God is king. God is the king of Israel. God is meant to be the king of Israel. God grieves that he is rejected from being the king of Israel. So the plan is not to have no king. The plan is to have God as king. That's the message of First and Second Samuel. And if you don't have God as king, you're going to get a man. And no matter, even if you get a good man, even if you get the best man, even if you get someone who's highly favored by God, you're still going to have a man and he's still going to be a sinner. Um, even the best king of Israel ever had was flawed and sinful. I mean, this, this guy, David, is basically seen as the apex of Israel's peace, Israel's prosperity. Saul, actually, Solomon is probably higher in terms of prosperity for Israel, but nobody's as venerated in the way that David is. Nobody, I mean, what do, what do they yearn for in the New Testament? They don't say son of Solomon. They're not looking for the son of Solomon to come. They're looking for the son of David because David is really the glory days for these people. Um, and so yearning, what, what does this book do? It leaves us with this yearning for a perfect king who can't die, for a perfect king who doesn't fail us, for a perfect king who can keep all of God's promises, and a perfect king who can bring us an eternal kingdom that's not made by hands. That's what this book leaves us with because he's giving us a look at all these other kings who are trying to do all of this stuff and all of them fall short because ultimately we need a greater king than even David. And that's Jesus. So it's a book that leaves us wanting Jesus. Um, so that's First and Second Samuel. Now we will see if we can accomplish this. And this might be a curious way for me to approach this. Hopefully you guys don't find this too objectionable. But uh, I'm going to be tackling four books at once. Well, actually, it's technically one book. But uh, all right. Kings is one book. Chronicles is one book. Um, we're going to do both of these, and actually, rather than going through the narrative directly, what I want to do is I actually want to cover the narrative and the timeline around the events of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. And I want to be careful how we do this because grasping this lesson actually is going to be the key to not being confused by the rest of the Old Testament. Um, when I was in uh, grade school, when I was in junior high, when I was in high school, I wasn't even a believer until I was in high school. But the churches that I went to, they talked about these events as if I knew what they were talking about. Um, they would take for granted the events of the kings and sort of the timeline. And there was some kind of, of exile that I still didn't understand as a kid and I couldn't wrap my head around it. And so in the end, it leaves, it be, it leaves the, the Old Testament being a very baffling book. Which means when you read Isaiah or Jeremiah or the major minor prophets, all of them, you can't even figure out where they go in the history of Israel. You don't even, you can't even wrap your head around it. And so it always just felt like, oh, here's a random book with people whose names I don't understand. And they're all talking to each other and they're fighting with each other. But you, you don't really understand what's going on. And so I don't know if Old Testament history baffles you. I don't know if the timeline leaves you a little confused uh, as it has for me for years. Um, but when I got older, you know, I was probably in my 30s before I really felt like, I, okay, I kind of get, get a handle on what happened here um, after the time of David. So I'm going to try and hopefully help you with this. I want to talk about First and Second Kings first. First and Second Kings covers the history of Israel after Solomon's time um, up until the time when the northern kingdom fell. The northern kingdom falls to the Assyrians. There are two dates. I'm just going to keep like hammering home over and over and over again. Here's the first day. I want you to know. 
722 BC is when the Northern Kingdom falls. 722 is when the Northern Kingdom falls. So what you're going to see, and we're going to narrate this in just a moment, is I'm going to draw you the worst picture you've ever seen of Israel. <laughs> I like, I'm like, if I try, then it'll be worse than if I just draw a general shape. So uh, here you go. This is it. This is like, that's Israel. And this is the north. And this is the south. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. They split in two. Northern kingdom has a capital. Does anyone know the capital of the northern kingdom? Samaria. Samaria. Damascus. No, it is Samaria. Never mind. Sorry. I get screwed. (laughs) I'm just going to put a big S for Samaria. And, of course, the capital in the south is Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeah. So in 722, the Assyrian army, if you remember Nineveh, if you remember Jonah and Nineveh, um, the same place, the Assyrian army comes against Samaria and they smash it. They destroy it. And that happens in 722. So we'll talk about what happens there. Kings covers the time of, from the end of David's reign until the time when the northern kingdom falls in 722. And then the book goes another 150 years. So that's the book of Kings. Uh, and it ends with the fall of the southern kingdom. And we'll talk about the date for the southern kingdom falling. I'm trying to give you one date at a time. Um, the book of Chronicles, on the other hand, is different, right? Kings is almost like a proper sequel to First and Second Samuel. If you're trying to read the narrative and you want, to, want them to go sort of back to back, you want to go First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Because when you get to Chronicles, the book leads off taking us all the way back to Adam. And the first nine chapters are genealogy. Um, and that's because Chronicles is basically a huge history of Israel as a whole. It's like a long story of Israel um, all the way from Adam up to when Cyrus allows the Jews to return to the land uh, after the, the exile. And if, that, if those terms don't mean anything to you, that's okay because we're going to talk about it. But that takes us a long ways, even past where Kings is. So Chronicles is this big picture um, sort of, uh, any of you guys Lord of the Rings nerds? This is like Cimmerillion. You know, this is like the Cimmerillion. And First uh, uh, and Second Samuel is like, is like uh, the Hobbit. And First and Second Kings is like Lord of the Rings, you know. <laughs> and this is sort of like the, here, do you want to get really nerdy and dive even deeper and know all the names and the genealogies and who begat who? This is your book. This is Chronicles is. But it's also great because it also gives you this big overview. So if you like, if you, again, I'm still doing Lord of the Rings here. But if you like the Cimmerillion, it gives you this big picture of what Middle Earth is like and all the history of all that stuff. So um, that's kind of what Chronicles is like. It gives you this bigger, wider picture and a broader view of of Israel's history. Um, Sort of a single volume history of Israel. So I want to talk about the history that these two books cover Because if you can understand these, then the other things that take place in the Old Testament, when I refer to something like the exile, or when I talk about the return from the exile, or when I talk about the fall of the northern or the southern kingdom, you'll be like, ah, I remember that. And it won't be as baffling, hopefully. So, um, 1 and 2 Kings opens with the time of Solomon. This book devotes 11 chapters to Solomon's time. So Solomon gets... I think Solomon gets more coverage, more time than any of the other kings in this book. Um, And by the way, the time of Solomon is the last time that this kingdom is actually united. 
So when we're talking about Solomon, we are not talking about a divided kingdom yet. We are talking about a whole Israel who were united under David and all together. And then his son Solomon inherits it. But even Solomon can't live forever. As rich as he is, he still croaks. So he dies in 931 BC. When this happens, he's got two boys. Anybody know their names? So you got Rehoboam. And then you got Jeroboam. Yep. What's that? He's his brother. Somebody help me. Are you sure he's not Solomon's son? Yep. Thank you. This is what I get for not having the text in front of me. So you have Rehoboam, you have Jeroboam. Rehoboam, he was what? not much of a politician. Oh, he's a servant. Rehoboam, uh, Jerobo, uh, Jeroboam's a servant, but he's not, he's, not, he's not king. So Rehoboam, not much of a politician. Um, it's almost like his dad had it easy. You know, Solomon in some ways did have it easy, right? He inherits a kingdom. It's all put together. He just sort of assumes this place runs like clockwork. Um, he's enjoying sort of just the, the fruits and the benefits of all this work that David has done for all these years. And so he, he, he just basically rolls in and says, hey, I'm the king now. And he doesn't really want to do the work of a king. And part of being a king is ruling people well. He doesn't want to do that. Instead, the people will come to him and they say, hey, listen, your dad worked us pretty hard. And we are basically worn out as a people. We are stretched to our limits. And we would like you to go easy on us. And Rehoboam instead says, oh, actually, my father made your yoke heavy. I'm going to add to your yoke. He says, my father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. If any of you are looking for a really great advice on being a politician. Uh, and so, so Rehoboam, not much of a politician, not very good at keeping a people together. Yeah. It's also worth noting that uh, Rehoboam sought advice of the elders that served his father who agreed with that they ought to go easy. Mm-hmm. And then he listened to the, his peers, mm-hmm. the peers the ones that encouraged him to put them with scorpions. Yeah, he should have listened to the elders. He didn't listen to the elders. He's like, I like these young, aggressive guys who seem to really know how to whip a people into shape. Um, and of course, when he does that, he strains the whole kingdom. So um, Jeroboam ends up convincing the northern kingdom to follow him. He says, look, this guy's a terrible leader. This guy is not going to do anything good for us. Let's break away. Let's start our own kingdom. And so Jeroboam takes the northern, northern, northern tribes with him. Basically, Judah stays behind. And is it Benjamin? Yeah, Judah and Benjamin are in the south, and everybody else is in the north. And so when this happens, this is really important. In fact, um, in fact, this is the thing that's going to, to resonate across the rest of the Old Testament probably more than any other decision that another leader makes. And that is Jeroboam makes this decision that this is not just a civil division. This is a religious division. Because look, um, if the people in the north still want to worship, where do they have to go to worship? Yeah, they've still got to go. They still got to go to the center of civilization right here in Jerusalem. And uh, Jeroboam knows that's going to be a problem, right? Because they're going to have to go into this southern territory. Who knows what the king's going to ask of them? Um, these guys can't be going down into the southern kingdom to to worship. And so he sets up these these worship sites in the north. Um, He decides to establish his own independent religion. He doesn't want the Israelites to be dependent on the Judahites for their worship. 
So um, for him, religion is a means of control. For him, he recognizes that religion is actually going to play this important role in the life of Israel. Well, it should. It's a theocracy, right? <laughs> it's a, it's a, a, a nation that's supposed to be hearing directly from God for its worship. And so what does he do? He leads them into idolatry. He sets up his own place of worship. In 1 Kings chapter 12, he makes two golden calves. And then he makes, says these words, Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Um, archaeologists have actually found the, the site where the worship took place, the high places. Um, you can, if you search for, on Google for Israel, Dan, high place, you can actually see the photos of these worship locations that he set up. In fact, I'll show you a picture. It's, it's pretty far away, so you go look it up for yourself. But um, you can actually see right there in the center, they have the, the altar. Um, they actually have, they, they've actually found the place where, where um, Jeroboam set up all this stuff and sent Israel down into such a death spiral. So definitely worth checking out. You can actually find like a lot of information about it. So it's really interesting. Um, but what is he doing? He's avoiding trips into Jerusalem. He wants to establish his own independent religion. Uh, and so he does this. He leads the people into idolatry. He, he invents his own religion, basically. And then he wants to say, and we are built off of Yahweh. This is the same God who's been with you, but we're going to worship God our way here in the northern kingdom. And so God is constantly bringing this up in scripture. Like, it is amazing. When I was, I was thinking to myself, man, you hear Jeroboam get mentioned a lot by God in the Old Testament. Can you just think of all the times where God brings up Jeroboam, even though he's long dead? Um, God is, God remembers this guy. And this guy is like in his hall of whatever your hall of faith is in the New Testament, whatever the opposite is, that's where Jeroboam goes. Because 24 times in the Old Testament, God mentions Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. 24 times. Could you imagine making God so angry that for the rest of the life of his people, he's constantly reminding people long after you're dead, how mad you are about Jeroboam doing what he did. Like, you don't want to be that guy. <laughs> and that's what Jeroboam is. He's, a, he's, an, uh, he's an innovator. And so he does this. He's deeply egregious sin. Uh, God never lets Israel forget it. Oh, he's, he'll, he'll look at somebody way down the line and say, you're just like Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused the people to sin. Uh, and that's like the worst thing he can say to you. So anyway, you have this um, pretty major break, this major break that happens. And in fact, this is something that I think we slip up a little bit when we do Old Testament history. Some of Israel's history, like when David's the king, Israel is Israel. But then if you're talking about the time of Jeroboam, then Israel is the northern kingdom. That throws you off. See, actually, when you're talking about the southern kingdom, you need to say Judah. And when you're talking about the northern kingdom, you need to say Israel. And that is not always easy to keep straight. So, um, yeah, that's just a, that's a nugget to keep with you at least. So I want to talk about Elijah and Elisha uh, very briefly. I'm not going to give them the sort of attention they deserve. These guys are... This is one of the most tightly compacted periods of miraculous work in Old Testament history. One of the things that I remember as a new Christian, I got so upset because I thought one of the things is as an atheist, I was always saying was, well, if, these, if miracles are happening all the time, then why don't we see them today? Why do they only happen in the Old Testament? Why do they only happen in the New Testament? Why, why don't we see tons of miracles happening today? 
And then one of the apologists that I was reading pointed out that actually miracles are still incredibly special and rare when they take place. Um, we think of them as being frequent because the Bible's a long book and it, re- and it recounts a lot of, of uh, history. But in reality, there are these periods where there's intense miraculous work and then the rest of life is pretty mundane in the Old Testament, right? But the time period of Elijah and Elisha is one of the most miraculous periods in the life of Israel. Um, I guess the point the apologist was making is we shouldn't think that miracles are the norm. That's what makes them miracles. That's what makes them unusual. Um, So when they happen, they are always eye-opening, eye-popping, and amazing because they don't happen. Um, That's how we're supposed to feel whenever a miracle happens. So that's the the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Each of them get eight chapters. Um, Two of the most important prophets in the history of the Old Testament. So important that uh, Elijah shows up on the mountain along with Moses, right? He's there with Jesus standing on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, So this is a towering figure in Old Testament history. Um, The sum of their ministry is they have to speak against these kings in the north and south. Here's the reality. Even though the king in the south didn't set up his own human, man-made, invented religion, what do they do? They still end up doing the same junk that the the kings in the north do. So even though their religion is quote-unquote pure, uh, that doesn't actually actually mean a whole lot uh, because they still love idols. They still lose the book of the law. Uh, They still uh, abandon the Lord. They stop observing even the Sabbath. They stop observing the the Passover. Um, There's all kinds of stuff just falls apart in the life of Israel and the South as well. So don't ever think of these people as being exempt. If they were exempt, then the Southern Kingdom wouldn't fall in 585, uh, which we'll get to in a moment. So... um, what happens in their ministries is centered around this one challenge, really this one ultimate challenge, and that is this question, who is God, Yahweh or Baal? Who is God, Yahweh or Baal? Because that's the pressure that's being put upon the northern kingdom right here is this pressure of, hey, Baal worship works. The surrounding kingdoms already do it. They get all kinds of fertility and their crops grow and it's fantastic for them. Why don't we do the same? And this contest takes place basically asking the question, really, Northern Kings, are you going to keep worshiping these false gods or are you going to worship Yahweh? Are you going to worship the true God? And so to answer that question, Elijah steps up and he defeats the prophets at Mount Carmel. Now, not because Elijah is some great figure, but because God is at work. God's using him. And um, it doesn't spark the revival that he expected. He really thought, you can see this disappointment in Elijah. He defeats the prophets of Baal. They're put to death. Uh, Everybody publicly now knows that Yahweh is God. There's really nothing standing between God taking over Israel and having a huge revival. Except for the fact that it never happens. Um, instead, Instead, King Ahab is not nervous. He's not afraid. Uh, he, he maybe maybe quakes a, a few times, but generally speaking, um, it's Elijah who's still on the run. And, and so he's just had this disappointing ministry where he's like, Lord, I thought this was everything my life was leading up to, was this moment where we have this confrontation. We've defeated the prophets of Baal. Everybody knows now that you're God. The fire came down from heaven. When the contest happens, a few things happen here that I want to point out. God is, it's like a, it's like a big argument against Baal. 
Everything that happens. Because what happens? Baal is the storm god. He's the god of the rain. He's the one that brings life. He's the one that brings fertility. Where does the fire come down from on Mount Carmel? Comes down from heaven, right? The realm of Baal. The realm of Baal is where the fire comes down from and consumes the sacrifice on the altar. Um, God demonstrates his mastery over rain by bringing drought during all this time, right? They're, They're doing all this stuff for Baal and nothing happens. There's just drought. People are dying. How is Baal helping you? And yet you guys are still dedicated to Baal. You still think that these other gods are going to help you. And the whole, the whole time God is just drying up the heavens. So they remember that Baal is actually not God. Um, and then, of course, he brings the rain in his own way. So that, so that they know it's Yahweh who's doing it. Um, Baal was known to have myths around him about him rising from the dead. There's an annual cycle where apparently Baal would do that. But, of course, Elijah and Elisha both raise the dead. Again, showing superiority over God, over Baal. Um, At every point, what is God doing? He's using Elijah and Elisha to show that Baal is nothing. They've got ample evidence in front of them that Baal is not the real God, that Yahweh is the true God, but there is just something attractive about Baal worship. There's something you can do. There's something transactional about it. It's very appealing to the Israelites, um, and they can't shake it. They can't shake that temptation. Um, so just wanted to point some of those things out about Elijah and Elisha. I do want to take you to one of the most horrifying chapters in the Bible. Uh, I'm doing this right now because there aren't children here. Um, if you have ever read second Kings chapter six, then you know that it's probably the grossest, worst. I don't know. I, I can't. The only thing closer is the ending of judges. You know, um, that's the, uh, what's the Levites concubine. That's the only passage I can think of that's worse. So the northern kingdom, <laughs> Jake, you're like, you're like worse than that? Ugh. Yeah. So the northern kingdom, you have Samaria. We talked about Samaria before. Originally thought it was Damascus because I'm a dummy. Uh, but Samaria is being besieged because, because Aram, uh, the, uh, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has surrounded the, the city. And, of course, when you surround a city, what are you doing? You're choking it off. You're, you're, uh, you, you're, you're basically starving it out. Get these people to lower the doors and let everybody out of the city and let us in and let us take it over. And they're holding out. And as they're holding out, the food dries up. As they're holding out, they're eating, you know, grass off of the ground if they can find it. They're so hungry. They have nothing to eat. And so in chapter 6, verse 24, there are two women and they're having an argument. And they come to the king and they ask the king, hey, king, we need you to settle something. And he says, all right, this is my job. This is what I do. Bring it before me. What is it? What is the simple problem that you have? So they said, well, we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But she's hidden her son. And the king, he's like, you you are fighting over whose baby to eat. And he doesn't, even, he doesn't even respond to them. All he does is it says, when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. And so, of course, the king believes this is the prophet's fault. He thinks this is the prophet's fault. Uh, if only this prophet wasn't speaking all these words, then none of this stuff would have ever happened. No one ever was to blame themselves. Everybody hates the messenger. And so, besides the end of Judges, this is diff- it's harder to think of a lower place for the life of Israel at all. Right? This happens because, and there's a reason I'm bringing this up. I'm not bringing it up for shock factor. 
I bring it up because this is part of the covenant of God. You go to Deuteronomy 28. If you remember a while back, I think it was you know, the last time we, we were in the spring, we were talking about Deuteronomy and we talked about Deuteronomy 28. If you remember, that's the chapter with all the covenant curses. That's the chapter with all the things that are going to happen to you if you break God's covenant. And I'm going to read to you from Deuteronomy 28. Listen to this. This is uh, Deuteronomy 28, verse 52 to 55. They shall, this is a consequence of breaking the covenant. It says, they shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns and throughout your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he, is nothing else le- he has nothing else left. In the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. It seems impossible that that text is in the scripture. When have you ever heard a sermon on that text? Who would ever pick that text to preach on? (laughs) Um, I mean, I would if I came to it in the Lectio Continua method that I use, but this is not exactly the sort of stuff that we get excited about. And yet, do you see how in such detail this actually happens? This actually takes place in 2 Kings chapter 6. These, these curses aren't just metaphor. They're not just hyperbole. They're not just exaggerations. God really does bring these judgments upon Israel. He really does visit them upon his people. And he does it because he says, I made a promise to you. And giving his people what their actions deserve is a part of God's way of showing love to his people. Um. Israel fell into idolatry because they thought their idols would bring them security. They thought they would bring them joy. They, they built up these walls around themselves because they thought they were going to have safety here. And instead, their idolatry brought them misery and anguish and all the covenant curses that God told them they were going to get. Now, the kings do try to reverse the downward direction. It's not as though every single king in the history of Israel is, or Judah is a disappointment. For example, you have Hezekiah. You have Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18 to 20. Um, Hezekiah brings religious reform. The text tells us that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, He removed the high places. He cut down the Asherah poles. Uh, Chapter 18, verse 5 says he trusted in the Lord. Um, He rebels against Syria. Um, He sought and prayed to the Lord in the temple for, for deliverance. This is a good man. Hezekiah is not a disappointment. Um. But he still experiences a failure. So I say he's not a disappointment. And then he, he's, he does disappoint because he makes this alliance with Babylon. He makes this alliance with, with these, these enemies of God so that he can protect Judah from Assyria. What is he doing? He's taking human, um, he's taking human tools to approach a divine problem. Right? This is a theological problem that Israel has. And he says, I'm going to find a human approach. And so he makes a treaty with enemies of God. And so he still disappoints. Um, you have Josiah in chapter 22 of 2 Kings. He repairs the temple. While the temple's being repaired, they find the book of the law. I have to wonder if Deuteronomy 28 is, is discovered. 
you see the reaction that, uh, that, that uh, Josiah experiences when they find the book of the law. And you can see that he is disturbed by what he reads. You can see that he's really upset by what he sees. And so you have to wonder, did he read Deuteronomy 28 in his, in his readings? Um, he attempts to remove idolatry from Judah, from Samaria. Um, he reinstitutes the celebration of the Passover. That's one of the shocking things you read. You go, they stopped celebrating the Passover. And you wonder how long had it been since they celebrated the Passover. The northern kingdom falls in, what was the date I told you? 722, northern kingdom falls. Besieged by Samaria in the ninth year of Hosea, king of Assyria. He captured Samaria, carried Israel away to exile in Assyria. That's it for the northern kingdom. They are no longer players on the world scene. They're no longer a part of the story. Um, it's invaded by the Assyrians. They mingle with the Israelites who live there. And the result of that union of the uh, Israelites and the Assyrians is this sort of syncretistic mishmash of Assyrian and Israelite religion. They have some hauntings, perhaps, of Yahweh. When Jesus meets the Samaritan woman, she seems to have some theological understanding. And yet at the same time, she also uh, is from a culture that's so distant from true worship that she doesn't quite seem to even understand how worship is supposed to take place, where it's supposed to take place, um, or really who Yahweh is. So it's, it's interesting. And so the Israelites, of course, treat the, uh, the, Assyrian, the Sumerians like second-class citizens. The story of the, Samar- of the Good Samaritan is a commentary on racial prejudice. Um, it is because the Israelites are completely against the hero of the story. Uh, The Israelites, every inkling in their body is to say, I know one thing, the priest is going to be the hero and the Samaritan is going to be the villain in the story. And actually the guy with bad theology, uh, but love in his heart ends up being the hero of the story. And that's not saying we should have bad theology, but it does say that Jesus made him the hero of the story, um, which is worth at least being willing to be corrected. Um, I want to do this. We're getting close. So I'm going to keep going. Northern Kingdom, out of the picture now. We're not talking about the Northern Kingdom. Now you've got this sad, isolated Southern Kingdom by itself. You have Judah here. And what happens is 150 years later in 605. Does anyone know who comes against the city? Who is the Babylonian leader who comes against the city? Joseph. Nebuchadnezzar. Yep, it's Nebuchadnezzar. The guy with the easiest name in the world to spell. Nebuchadnezzar comes against the city. He breaks Israel. He takes Daniel. He takes other officials from Israel into exile. He wants the leaders. Why do you take the leaders? You're breaking them politically. You're breaking the organizational ability of the nation that you're removing people from. You're removing the quality citizens, right? You're kind of leaving the riffraff behind and you're leaving and you're taking the people who really could help everybody sort of band together. So you strip them of their power, and then all you've got left is this populace that's not much of a threat to you. That's the plan. Um, Then in 597, so that's the first deportation right there, 605. That's the first deportation of the southern kingdom. And then in 597, Ezekiel and other leaders get exiled. That's the second deportation. Now, people debate, when do you say that Israel, that the, um, the Babylonian exile began? Do you say that it began in 605 or do you say it began in 597? And the answer is 
It's both. They're both deportations. They're both exile. But 597 is when the, the, the kingdom really loses its power, really loses its leadership completely. So all you've got left after this is like farmers and just sort of people sort of trying to, and left defenseless really uh, behind. And so in 586, the majority of those who remained are exiled too. Jerusalem is just a shadow of its former self. There's, there's really nobody left except for a few scattered people. Well, exile lasts how long? Does anyone know? 70 years. It lasts 70 years. And then you, uh, after 70 years, then uh, the people return. And this is what happens at the end of Second Chronicles. The, the book of Second Chronicles ends with this, actually this happy note. Because it ends with Cyrus making this proclamation that the people of Judah should go back and they should resettle Jerusalem and they should build up the temple again. And we're going to get to that uh, next week when we talk about Ezra and Nehemiah because that's what these guys are going to be concerned with. So uh, that'll be great. We'll be able to talk about how Israel gets restored. Here's an interesting note just to consider. Uh, the Hebrew Bible is in a different order than in the Hebrew Bible than it is in the English Bibles. We have a different order um, and uh, we have a sa- the same, same inspired table of contents, but very different order. In the Hebrew Bible, this is the end of their Old Testament. The book actually ends with the proclamation of Israel returning to Judah and resettling the land. It ends on this optimistic note. Even though as far as chronology goes, Malachi is later. You know, there are other people who are later. But it's like the, um, in the Old Testament, they almost want to be able to, to end on this note that just says, God is stirring up his spirit. He's sending his people back. And it ends on this hopeful note. I think that's interesting. The Old Testament ends that way for the Jewish people. Um, It's this forward-looking note, isn't it? Um, Just like Malachi. In our Bibles, Malachi, very forward-looking way for the Old Testament to end. God does the same thing for the the Jews as well. What a suitable way to end the Old Testament, right? Looking forward to something greater than all of this mess that came before. Quite a mess, by the way. Uh, We blew through that about as fast as a person could. Uh, We just covered like hundreds of years of Israel's history. Hopefully you found some benefit in it. But we'll do Ezra and Nehemiah next week. Um, let, me, let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that you keep your covenant. We thank you that you are not a God to wink at sin. We thank you, even though it is hard, a hard reality, that, um, that you take sin seriously. And we know that we saw that in your very son, Lord. In your very son, we saw, we saw the seriousness of sin on display for us, Lord. Throughout Israel's life, you showed us that you value justice, that you care about sin. But there on the cross, as your son was hanging, as your son was dying, everyone could look and see that God takes sin seriously and he does not wink at it. I pray we would remember that. I pray that we would treasure Christ Fill us with gratitude, O God. Make us a people who who reflect Jesus. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.